0: I'm Les Chapman, the Senior Preaching Minister here at the Hendersonville Church of Christ. and We want to welcome you to our services today. The leadership here at Hendersonville have been in prayer, have been in consultations, we've been meeting and discussing how we can open in the near future and once again see you face to face. Please be praying uh, for the leadership here, especially our elders as they try to make those very difficult decisions. As we have been praying for you, we're in a series of lessons entitled His Story, subtitled This Is My Story. And over the last three or four weeks, we've been looking specifically at prophecies of the Old Testament that look forward to the coming of Jesus. You know, Jesus in Luke chapter 24 meets with the apostles in the upper room after his resurrection. And in that meeting, he tells them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Jesus recognized that the books of Genesis all the way through Malachi continued many prophecies pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And he said every one of them had to be fulfilled, written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. We've been looking at just a few of those When you look at these Messianic prophecies, three weeks ago, we began with the Davidic covenant, a covenant that God made with David, promising, basically, that one of his descendants would eventually become king and sit on his throne forever. We followed that with what we call the crucifixion song. Jesus, when he was on the cross, right before he died, cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which was the first verse of Psalm 22, a psalm that describes what the crucifixion was like in remarkable detail. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 110, In that Psalm of David. David basically looks at the coming of the Messiah and says that he would fulfill two roles. First of all, he would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. God says to him in the very first verse, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But then in verse four, he's declared to be a priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a very important prophecy about Jesus's dual roles as king and priest. Today we turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Our memory verse will be verse 5, even though there are so many verses in that particular chapter we could have used. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. This is a very important passage found in a very important chapter of the book of Isaiah. You see, when you look at major messianic prophecies, there are a lot of minor prophecies. In other words, one verse that might look forward to the coming of Jesus. But you have three that are several verses long that look at very important aspects of Jesus' life. The crucifixion song in Psalm 22. The coronation and priesthood song in Psalm 110. And then we have the atonement song. This comes out of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, and going through 53, verse 12. This is a song, a poem, uh, a psalm that probably most of us would be familiar with some of the verses in it. What I love about studying texts like this is that they reaffirm my ability, personally, to trust the Bible. I would encourage you, write down somewhere in your Bible, maybe inside the front cover, maybe inside the back cover, these passages, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, and Isaiah uh, chapter 52, beginning in verse 12, going all the way through chapter 53. You know, there are people who, for whatever reason, leave the church. They were raised going to church. Perhaps they were even baptized. But they come to a point in their life where they're just not quite sure that what they've been taught all their life is right. I tell you, if you could just find someone like that and encourage them to take a second look, sit down with them and walk them through Psalm 22. Show them what Psalm 110 predicted about the coming king of Israel who would also be a priest who would make atonement for us. And then look at uh, Isaiah 53, that incredible atonement chapter which explains exactly what happened to Jesus because of my sins and yours. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah of course is one of the longest books in the Old Testament, 66 chapters. But beginning in chapter 40, you have a series of writings that address what's called the suffering servant. There are four songs or poems contained in those texts. The first one is found in chapter 42, 1 to 4, 49, 1 to 6. The third one is Isaiah 50, 4 through 9. And then the fourth one is the one that we're going to look at today, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and going through 53, verse 12. Now, these songs have a very powerful message. You see, God had chosen Israel to to be his light to the world, but Israel had failed. Israel had been anything except light to the world. And so in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah said that God had to find another way. And what he did was simply to raise up one particular servant, a servant who would suffer. And in the suffering would point the light toward God. And so we have this suffering servant that we call the Messiah. Now let me say a word about that. In the first century, unfortunately, Jews did not connect those two. Did they believe in the Messiah? Absolutely. Descendant of David? Oh yes. One who would be the king? That too. But they had a hard time seeing this future king as a suffering king especially considering what Isaiah 53 described he would end up doing. Now, somebody may stop and say, how do you know less that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus? All you have to do is turn to the New Testament. Here's one example of it. This is a passage found in Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 tells the story of a man by the name of Philip, better known as Philip the Evangelist. The chapter begins with him evangelizing up in Samaria, and then in the latter half of the chapter, he's told to go and and to go to the road that leads from Jerusalem down to Gaza, going toward Egypt, and, and he went, and there he met a eunuch. This eunuch was a treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia, very wealthy man who was either a proselyte or was born a Jew. We don't know which. But he had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way back home. Philip was told to go and run near his chariot. And as he did, he heard the man. He was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, which really tells you how rich he was. You see, average people in Jesus' day didn't own the the scroll of Isaiah. it was simply too expensive. And so as he's running uh, next to the chariot, he hears him reading this verse. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter." And as a lamb before shears shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Philip basically asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? And so he asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, he was reading from Isaiah 53. Now, they didn't have chapters or verses back then, but we know from the quote that's given there by Luke that that's where it's found. And notice what the text says. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See, Philip knew who Isaiah 53 was pointing to. It was Jesus. There are other passages that basically say the exact same thing. And so I hope that we can very quickly look at this incredible song that tells the story of what Jesus did for you and for me. This particular song is, is broken up into five stanzas of three verses each. Again, it's a song, it's a poem. And so it basically has these five different acts that take place in it. The first stanza is from Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, and it basically introduces what Isaiah is going to be saying in chapter 53. Notice how it begins. See, my servant will act wisely. There's that suffering servant. Uh, We don't know he's going to be suffering that much until we get into chapter 53. But Isaiah says he is acting wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. You know, you turn over to the book of Philippians chapter 2, and you see Paul, as he's basically following the same theme as found in Isaiah 52 and 53, he too describes the fact that as a result of what Jesus did, God highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name. And so this particular song begins with this exaltation of who Jesus is. But then it very quickly turns a very strange direction. Notice what he then says. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say he was exalted by God? He did. Then why is he describing people who were appalled at him? That's where that strange turn begins. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of human any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now at this point, if you're reading Isaiah, you're scratching your head. How can the one be exalted who had people appalled at him because his appearance barely looked human like? And then notice where he turns. Now, this is from the NET translation. I think it does a better job than the NIV does in verse 15. But notice what he says. So now he will startle many nations. Now, the NIV says sprinkle. There's a debate as to the meaning of the Hebrew word there. I think startle is probably more accurate. And so that causes you to pause and say, why? Why does he startle the nations? Kings will be shocked by his exaltation. For they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. In other words, the story of Jesus is a strange story. The story of God becoming flesh, suffering, dying, being raised, and once again exalted. And Isaiah 53 tells us what happened during that process. We move to the second stanza after that introduction where you have the rejection of this suffering servant. You see, God was sending him to do what Israel would not do, could not do. But guess what? They even rejected him. He begins in verse 1 with this question. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord here simply is a reference to God's salvation. And so he begins by saying, who has believed this message? I like the way the voice translates it. Indeed, who would ever believe it? Who would possibly accept that what we've been told? Who has witnessed the awesome power and plan of the eternal in action? Basically, he begins by saying, this is a strange message. Who can believe it? You know, you would find Jesus quoting that very statement in John 12 where John writes, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus came. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle. Nicodemus came to him at night and said, Lord, we know you from God. You're from God. For no one could do what you're doing unless God was with him. And yet the Jewish leadership would not believe him. In fact, they rejected him. And that's the question that Isaiah is asking. Who has believed our message? Paul would continue that in Romans chapter 10. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. In other words, God sent them his Messiah, but not everyone accepted him. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 53. Lord, who's believed our message? Now, it took a miracle for Paul to believe it. I mean, there was a lot of stubbornness on the part of many in the Jewish leadership at that time. And so, here's my question. Have you? Have you believed the message that's been presented to you from God's holy word? Let's continue to explore this psalm. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in this appearance that we should desire him. You know, Jesus wasn't born in a mansion. He was born and placed in a manger. Jesus wasn't born to a lot of hoopla with people celebrating the birth of the Messiah. It took strangers from the east to come and say, we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. And then he says that there was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. I think one of the big mistakes we sometimes make is we envision Jesus as being this strong, handsome, awesome looking, you know, specimen of humanity. Isaiah says that wasn't the case at all. In fact, if we had seen him and not known who he was, there had been nothing about him to attract us to him. And then he goes on to begin the process of what happened to him he was despised and rejected by mankind. I want you to remember that word rejected here. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. One of the things that Isaiah does is use a lot of we's. We did this. We did that. He did this for us. He he took our, you know, sins. And so it's a very personal passage here that I want to encourage you, place yourself in these pronouns. Now again, notice that word rejected. Jesus oftentimes would talk about the very fact that that's what would happen to him. Coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he says to Peter, James, and John, to be sure Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much, and be rejected. Jesus says, why is it written? Where is it written? Isaiah chapter 53. So, again, I ask that question I asked a few moments ago. Have you rejected him? Have you been uh, given the gospel, heard the gospel, and turned your back on it? I hope not. Many in the first century did, unfortunately. We move now to the third stanza, Isaiah 53, 4-6. And here we see the servant's vocation. In other words, why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? And this is where it gets intense. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He begins with this phrase, surely he took our pain, bore our suffering. The Septuagint talks about that he's carried his our illnesses on him. In fact, you turn to Matthew chapter 8 and when Jesus is healing all kinds of people, casting out demons, verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And once again, quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. We did not see him for who he was. Instead, we saw him as someone who had been rejected by God. Again, notice the pronouns there. But he was pierced for our transgressions. I wish you'd let that sink in for just a few moments. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was pierced for your transgressions. I think sometimes we think about how that Jesus died for everybody else's sins out there. When in reality, we need to make it personal and realize he died for mine. He was pierced for me. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I'm healed. You're healed. You see the vocation that Jesus is fulfilling. That is why he came. And then Isaiah describes all of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. I think of what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, without Jesus Christ, we're all in the same boat. I don't care whether you consider your sins to be minor or your sins to be major. The reality is it only takes one to be out of relationship with God. That's all it took for Adam and Eve to be driven from the garden. And so let us be careful that we don't see ourselves because maybe we sin so little as somehow being better of those who sin a lot. You see, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you? I know I have. Uh, when I look back on my life and, and look at the things that I have committed that, you know, I knew better than, I think, boy, how true it is. We are all sinners before God. And then he says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Once again, my sins were placed on his head, your sins were placed on his head. Again, a a passage that gets incredibly personal, that forces us to reflect who Jesus is, but more importantly, what he did, what he did for you and what he did for me. We come to the fourth stanza, which is the consequences of our sins. What what did those cause to happen? And here's where basically Isaiah 53 kind of links up with Psalm 22. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, one thing about Jesus when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and and the soldiers came to arrest him. You remember Peter pulled out a sword and, and thought, I'll defend you, Lord. And the response of Jesus was, don't you know that there are angels simply waiting for me to call? And they'll be here in just a moment? The twinkling of an eye? I mean, Jesus suffered intentionally. You know, Jesus was the master debater. Anytime somebody to trap, uh, tried to trap him, they simply couldn't do it. And yet when he was put on trial, well, notice what the text says. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders... He gave no answer. Could he? Of course he could have. He could have silenced them instantly. But he didn't. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate had never seen a prisoner like this. Who doesn't try to defend themselves? I tell you who doesn't. The one who's planning on dying for the sins of the world. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? I want you to think about that question right there. Who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. I think back to the crucifixion scene as described in Luke 23. Pilate has found nothing wrong in him and is wanting to release Jesus. Now political power will cause him to go the other direction. But notice what the text says. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept crying, crucifying, crucifying. Who of his generation defended him? They didn't defend him. They demanded that he die. I would have liked to have thought that I would have been different. Perhaps you as well. But you know, I I think the problem is oftentimes we're blinded by what God is doing in our lives. He goes on in verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. I like the way, again, the New English Translation does it. They attended to bury him with criminals. He was crucified beside two. Now, of course, one of them repented and, and Jesus saved him. That they had been criminals. But notice what the text says, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the Sanhedrin, went to Pilate, asked for his body, and buried him in his own freshly cut tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Here's Isaiah 800 years earlier predicting that Jesus would not be buried with the wicked but be buried in a rich man's tomb, because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Jesus had not sinned. But even though he had not sinned, he, he would be executed with the wicked and buried among the rich. And so we come now to the final stanza, the fifth one, which is verses 10 through 12. And we look at God's atoning work and how that it is finished. You know, when you get to the end of Psalm 22, you have that verse that says, He has done it. In many ways, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says the same thing. Jesus accomplished what the Father sent him to do. He suffered. He died. But he was also exalted. Notice verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will. That was God's will. God's will was that Jesus die for the sins of the world. It was God's plan. And if there had been another, I know that God would have chosen it. And so God made his life a sin offering, a sin offering for mine and for yours. Jesus died as an offering for your sins if you'll accept him. Again, the question, have you? Have you accepted the forgiveness he paid the ultimate price for? We go on in verse 10. He says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now this causes you to stop for a moment and think, now wait a minute, It just describes how that he was crushed, that he suffered, that he was a sin offering. Now, how does God prolong his days? And the answer is simple. It's called resurrection. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. I like the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Mel Gibson tried to describe much of what Isaiah 53 uh, describes in detail. But in the last scene the stone of the tomb begins to roll back and light begins to flood in and Jesus walks out victorious. I love this last phrase here by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many. Boy. I mean, have you been justified by? Him? It's a question every one of us needs to ask who've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, not only will he justify many, but he will bear our iniquities. One of the great promises of Jesus is not only are our sins washed away. You know, Peter on the day of Pentecost said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. But it's just not the remission of your past sins. Jesus' blood continues to cleanse us. John would say in 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his Son continues to cleanse us. And so Jesus continues to bear our iniquities. Not only our past, but our present and even our future. Therefore, God says, I will give him a portion among the Greek, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. I mean, you're back to that exaltation we had at the end of chapter 52. God exalted him, and he exalts him once again. He gives him a portion among the Greek. And notice what he says. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death. You know, we meet on the Lord's Day to remember that very fact. Jesus, in instituting the supper, said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Let I me mean, notice the exact same language. Because he poured out his life, Jesus poured out his blood. The blood is the life for the forgiveness of our sins. And he goes on to say this, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Interesting way to end. Jesus came to live with us, to experience what we experience so that he can be a faithful high priest. In Luke 22, as he's going to Gethsemane, he says, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus knew when he went to the garden that what was fixing to happen that night and the next day would be a fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied so long ago. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And you know, Jesus is still doing that. He is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us even to this day. He'll intercede for anyone who accepts him. And so we finish this sermon with the question we've asked all the way through. Have you accepted him? Have you accepted the forgiveness of sin that only comes through His blood? If not, do what the people on the day of Pentecost were urged to do. Put your faith in Him. Repent of your sins and be baptized, immersed in water, born again of water and the Spirit, so that you can experience the forgiveness that Jesus gave His life to purchase. Thank you for joining us today. you have any needs whatsoever, don't hesitate to call me here at the office. You can email me at leschapman13 at gmail.com. What a wonderful text for us to focus on this week, and may God bless you as you do. Have a great week.